Episode 8 of Prelude to a Scream has it all. Fantastic fiction, phenomenal guest authors, a wonderful guest reviewer, and Mark Leslie babbling on and on and on about his fiction. Yes, this is the collaboration episode of Prelude to a Scream. Silent screams bounce around my head like an impending storm, brewing into a force that will escape in a wild dance of chaos and be lost forever if I don't stop to write them down. Welcome to episode 8 of Prelude to a Scream. This is the collaboration episode. The reason being is the story that's going to be featured today is called Relic, or How to Get Ahead in Retail. It was written by Michael Kelly, Mark Leslie, and Carol Weeks. And this was a story that was limited to a 100-copy chapbook edition, uh, numbered, and it was uh, sold only at Back of Phoenix Books in Toronto, which is where this story takes place. So uh, I will talk quite a bit more about the writing of the story and collaborating with these two phenomenal authors, but for now, let's just jump right into the story, shall we? Relic by Michael Kelly, Mark Leslie, and Carol Weeks The odd book seized Barry Petrovic's attention immediately. Morning sun glinting off a passing bus spotlit the book in the front display window of the store, and he paused. He didn't hear the squeal of the bus brakes, nor smell diesel exhaust, because seeing the book gave him an all-consuming sense of déjà vu. It held him spellbound. Despite the feeling, Barry was certain he'd never seen the book before. It was thin, at least a quarter the thickness of other paperbacks beside it, and the spine was a mangy yellow, suggesting two or three decades of shelf life, or more. No, he felt certain that he'd never seen the book before, at least not in the two months he'd managed BP Books, the country's oldest science fiction bookstore. He would have certainly remembered seeing such an old relic among the stacks of newer titles. Sure, BP Books carried not only the latest hot sci-fi titles, while also holding an authoritative selection of the genre's classics, but an old book like this belonged in the small used book section at the back of the store, rather than up front with the new releases. For some reason, the book seemed familiar, as if he'd touched it before, held it, and read it, treasured it. It was a strong yet fleeting impression, powerfully there one moment, then gone the next. Barry wondered if perhaps Gale, who had closed the store Friday night, had shuffled some books around. He knew that Gale, one of the few remaining staff members who stayed on after the sudden and tragic death of the store's previous manager, her close friend Penelope, still had her bad days, where she roamed about quiet and shell-shocked. She'd occasionally do something like that, shove a book out of place, or add a completely irrelevant title into a themed display. He'd overlooked these dalliances, of course, understanding how difficult moving on after Penelope's death had been for her. Most of the other staff members at BP Books had left when Penelope had been discovered one morning, lying in the middle of the sales floor, two thread-light strings of blood running from her eyes. The only thing the autopsy had determined was that her heart had stopped beating near midnight the evening before. Her demise had resulted from a form of cardiac arrest. She had last been seen bidding farewell to the final two store employees, Chris and Leah, who'd left at 9.15 that fateful evening after the store had closed. Penelope had told them she would be remaining to prepare a window display for the next day. When her staff had offered to remain and help her, she shooed them off, always putting others' needs before her own. The next morning she'd been found. Other than the bizarre lines of blood leaking from her eyes, 
No other signs existed that it had been anything other than a heart attack. As Barry wrestled with and jiggled the stiff key lock, making yet another mental note to call a locksmith to come in and work on it, he kept his eye on the book through the window of the front door. Finally getting the door open, the frame of the door passed across his line of vision, hiding the book from his view for a second. That had been enough, though, because as he retrained his eyes on the same shelf, the odd, out-of-place book he'd been spying on was no longer there. He forgot about the book as the day kicked in, and customers, many of them regulars whom Barry knew on a first-name basis, and other inquisitive browsers filled the aisles. The store, although not old in years, as this had been the third time in a decade that the store had changed locations, contained an aged air that Barry felt was proudly redolent of a successful bookstore. The fine miasma of paper, inks, glue, and the tantalizing anticipation of stories that promised to cup you in their literary hands and transport you into worlds of joy, wonder, mystery, and terror. He, along with Gale and another part-timer in for the day, Bruce Donovan, went about their usual routine, chatting with customers, adding new additions to shelves, arranging and pricing and inventorying stock. At little before noon, as the morning rush waned, Barry found his thoughts returning to the clandestine book he knew he'd seen on the shelf near the front door that morning. He made a note to ask Gale. Hey, he called to her, as she traipsed past carrying an armful of the latest release of the Tesseract's anthology series destined for the floor. Can I ask you something? His gaze shifted from her mysterious green eyes and her lithe form to the delicate cant of her light brown ponytail, the color of spring maple syrup, to the now obvious empty spot on the shelf where the book had sat. The half-inch spot contained a fine layer of dust, dust that wouldn't have accumulated if something had been wedged in there only hours earlier. Yes, Gail replied in her faux accent. Gail liked to enunciate things. Down there, Barry nodded, using his chin to indicate direction. A strange little book caught my attention. Touch shabby, the spine looking almost caramelized with age. Caramelized? Gail sniffed. Her usually pretty expression adopted a slight shadow of disdain. The word suggested something sticky and not so pleasant. And when she'd pronounced it, the word had come out thick and stretched like a taffy pull. Yellow. Barry scratched at his head. An old, yellowish, broken-looking book that was so atypical that it stood out immediately as I entered. It gleamed like a faintly dirty jewel. It's not there now. The curio and its disappearance left his stomach feeling tense, even frightened. What bothered him is that he couldn't pinpoint why this might be so. What happened to it? That's the thing. I don't know. Was it rare? Gail queried, her interest piqued. "'Expensive?' Her expression transgressed from contempt to curiosity. "'I couldn't tell you. Why does it matter, then?' He wondered himself, and found that he couldn't answer the question. Yet it seemed imperative that he locate the book and do... something. Examine it, hide it, cast it out from the store, maybe even burn it. The memory of its appearance and how it almost glowed on the shelf, alienating the other books around it, caused him to shiver. He needed a coffee good rich java flavor with a boost of three sugar cubes from the pot that Gail made and kept on a hot plate at the back of the store. I wanted to take a look at it. It was out of place. Hmm, she shrugged. I couldn't tell you. Maybe someone also noticed it because it was odd, picked it up, carried it around for them for a bit, put it down again somewhere. You're right, he said. Leave it to Gail to always make sense. The book was still in the store. He could feel it. Why it was crucial that he locate it and do something with it, he couldn't explain. 
I'm going for a coffee, he told her. Work the counter for a bit, will you? Sure, she said. She'd been reading Southern Gothics again. On his way to the back of the store, Barry's attention cruised the shelves along each aisle, his concentration intense as he scanned the volumes of books for any discrepancy. None. Not a thing was out of place despite the business of the morning. He wondered if someone had lifted the book, equally caught by its unusual demeanor, to transport it out and away beneath the folds of a coat. If that was the case, so be it. Perhaps something that felt so intense should disappear. As he ambled through the dwindling horror aisle, he was hit again by a feeling of déjà vu so profound that he stopped walking, balancing on the balls of his feet and using his arms to maintain his posture as the image came to him. It was of their previous manager, Penelope Mackenzie, her eyes stark and boring straight ahead of herself despite blood running from them, the pupils dilated as if she died staring into some unimaginable chasm, searching for and seeing abominable horror freezing the mind behind the vision. Barry shook his head, grimaced. Clearly he'd read too much Lovecraft. Still, questions remained. How did this book link to Penelope's deathly horror? A heart attack, yes, the numerous tiny capillaries behind the eyes having burst from the pressure of the coronary event. But why? Why a heart attack in a woman barely fifty years old, in fine shape and with no former history of cardiovascular problems? Because something frightened her he whispered to himself. People can die of fright. He hurried, glancing over his shoulder as if he expected to see the yellowish book skittering behind him, its print dark and lurid, its pages smelling of air escaping from old, confined trunks in damp places. He burst into the coffee room and, with hands trembling, poured himself a good helping of Colombian coffee into his favorite mug. He stood with uncertainty, his muscles taut and his mind racing as he tried to find that neurological link between sensation and memory that caused this phenomenon called déjà vu. But the more he tried, the more it evaded him, just like the book in question. Incredible, he murmured, and turned to grab the pitcher of cream sitting on a bowl of ice nearby. Something brushed the edge of his left foot. He paused, glanced down, and felt a crawling burst of adrenaline cut through his chest as he recognized the very book that had disappeared this morning. It lay on the floor, its cover bent, but still decipherable its ugly spine touching his shoe. That side of his foot felt hot. The book, a garish yellow beneath the overhead lamps, winked and beckoned at him like a nugget of aged amber. Barry's mug dropped from his hand. He watched it fall in slow motion through the air, watched it connect and shatter with the floor, sending ropey entrails of coffee in all directions, watched as the book's cover, an introductory page opened on this gust of activity, and on the page that faced him were the words, Chapter 1. Penelope. She'd found the book in the back room, atop her inventory clipboard, as if the book waited for her. Immediately she knew it wasn't part of the store inventory, knew it was something special, something ancient and wise, a text from another world, from the vast, unexplainable cosmos, perhaps. It was a slim volume with a faded and aged, pale yellow cover, a tone someone might refer to as ochre, vein-like cracks tracing the surface. She picked the book up, and it was warm, as if alive. Indeed, it seemed to move closer to her as she held it, an infant snuggling nearer to its mother. She smiled and opened the book. At first the pages appeared covered in some sort of unrecognizable print, but when she blinked, they were completely blank, stained sepia with age. Then the parchment slowly darkened, 
revealing a swirling chasm of dust and stars, a wide, black, limitless void that churned with power and intelligence. And the book spoke to her in the oldest of tongues. It told her what to do. She knew, suddenly, after years of mindless servitude, that she had a new master. She knew now how to get ahead in retail. The door creaked open, and Penelope stuck her head in, breaking Gail's reverie. "'Is everything all right?' Penelope asked. Gail turned, grinned. "'Yes!' "'So, now you know.' Barry looked up, ashen-faced. The slim book sat in his lap, closed. He ran his hand across its surface. The primeval parchment felt like rubbery skin. It pulsed. When he'd found the book again, he'd plucked it up and carried it into the back stockroom. The book was more than warm in his hands. It was hot, burning with ancient knowledge. It was a real, physical thing. He hadn't imagined it. He read it in the dim room, read the foreword in the one-hand scrawled chapter about Penelope. Then he dozed off, as if drugged. Barry hadn't locked the door, and here was Gail standing in front of the closed door. He hadn't heard her come in. Gail turned, twisted the lock so that any other staff members would need to use their key to get in the room. "'So now you know,' Gail repeated. It came out low, guttural, and alien. Barry backpedaled, pushing the chair against the far wall. He scanned the room, but knew the only means of escape was the door. The door Gail guarded. Her green eyes, once a mystery to Barry, shone with a strange, luminescent ferocity. Gail lumbered towards him, spread her arms wide, staring at the book. She muttered something indecipherable. The book slowly opened. Barry recoiled. His nostrils flared at the strange smell that suddenly filled the tiny room, a commingling stench of moldering decay and hot ash. The book rose up, opened fully. Barry stared at the pages unfolding before him. They formed a spinning black vortex, a dark funnel sucking at him. He could not look away. His eyes bled. A tiny bell chimed as the front door of the bookstore opened, then shut. Something about the golden morning light, the way it flashed momentarily across the bookshelves as it was reflected off the open door, made Sean Broden turn and look. There, on a lower shelf, a spine of a book yellowed with age caught his attention. The thin and tattered book sat wedged between two thick hardbacks, obviously misplaced. It was so slim and dusty, Sean was surprised he'd noticed it at all. He'd been managing the bookstore for only a month now, but had not come across this particular volume. From this vantage point, behind the counter, it was a sad and forlorn tome, a relic. Sean stepped around the counter, walked over to the shelf, and bent down to examine it. The book wasn't there. The small space between the two hardbacks was dust-filled, as if nothing had occupied the gap in a long time. Sean blinked. A trick of the morning light, he thought? That's all. Time for another coffee. What do you see? Still crouching, Sean turned. Gail stood in front of the door. Her green eyes flashed. Suddenly uneasy, Sean stood, gestured to the shelf. Nothing. I thought I saw something is all. Gail chortled, an alien sound. She turned and locked the front door. Hey, Sean said, nervous laughter trickling from his mouth. That's a strange way to run a bookstore. Gail smiled. Yes. Something brushed along Sean's leg. He glanced down. The slim, elusive book inched up his leg, the spine and cover undulating with a pulse. 
It felt warm and alive. Sean jumped, kicked out, but the book continued to pull itself up his body, slipping beneath the fabric of his pants where its cover scratched against the hair of his flesh. It slid to his upper body in an instant. "'What?' Sean said, trying to pry the book from his chest. He saw the book fly open, saw the first page. Penelope. Then the pages flew past, brushing his face, and stopped on chapter two. Barry. Gale pulled the blinds, cutting out the morning light. Sean's eyes widened, his heart raced. "'What are you doing?' he said, a moment before the book went for his face, and his breath was cut off. He felt his eyes pulsate with pressure and tasted blood running along his cheeks before fainting. Gale spoke in an ancient, unintelligible tongue, a series of strange clicks and sonorous moans. To the human hearer, it would have translated as, I'm writing a new chapter. Well, that was Relic, a story by Michael Kelly, Mark Leslie, and Carol Weeks. Again, it was published as a limited edition chap book back in 2007, limited to 100 numbered copies uh, and four-lettered copies as well. This book um, was a lot of fun for Michael and uh, Carol and I to work on. We were doing an event at Back, and we thought we'd try and do something a little bit unique, and, and I think it sold for something like $1.99. And others, Carol and I had collaborated multiple times in the past, and Michael and Carol had collaborated uh, a couple times in the past. The story Relic was the first time that Michael, Carol, and I had collaborated together, although not the first time we had worked on the same story. Uh, fun little project. We did collaborate together previously um, on a story called Mad Crow and the Forest Fox, which appeared in the Red Red Robin Project. This was a CD-ROM anthology produced and edited by Brian A. Hopkins of Lone Wolf Publications back in 2000. The other contributors to the story were Kathy Buberuz, Sephora Jerome, Butch Miller, and David Strogan. Um, and that we had worked on that um, many, many years ago. But this is the first time that Michael, Carol, and I had collaborated together. I always find collaborating um, with writers a, an interesting process because, particularly in the case of Michael and Carol, uh, these are two phenomenally brilliant writers. Uh, I absolutely admire uh, the stuff that comes out of their pens or from their keyboards. The basic way that we wrote Relic was I'd started the story off uh, I passed it over to Carol Carol passed it over to Michael and we basically then uh, went through just another round of where we each looked at it and did some small tweaks and rewrites and chatted about it a little bit and then came up with the final draft version of the story the thing that I, I love about this is is because I admire Michael and Carol's writing so much, uh, I love to see how our, our writing blends together for the end product, and um, and that really satisfies me. Previously, I had written some stories with Carol, as I'd mentioned. One of them, um, called uh, It Creeps Up With You, was um, printed in my book, uh, 2004, One Hand Screaming, and Carol and I had originally had that story published in... Okay, let me go back here, let me see... Um, now, oh, the World Fantasy uh, 2001 uh, CD-ROM. Uh, this was edited by Nancy Kilpatrick, um, and so that was a story Carol and I had, had worked on 
several years earlier. And and again, I, I'm always amazed when I can find my writing actually merging nicely with the writing of a writer that I so admire. And and I think you get that full effect uh, in uh, in Relic as well, where uh, I'm honored to be presented beside uh, two fantastic authors. I had previously collaborated with other authors such as John Strickland and uh, one of the things that I thought was unique about the way John and I had collaborated uh, rather than the way that Michael and Carol had done this is Michael and Carol and I had not sat together physically in the same room to collaborate and uh, we didn't get together until we were actually selling it at Back of Phoenix in Toronto. Um, John and I previously had actually sat in a room together to collaborate on a story or rather I was in one room uh, with the keyboard typing away while John was just relaxing in the other room listening to music and drinking coffee and then we would switch out every 15 or 20 minutes or however long uh, that part of the writing session took place and um, I thought it was interesting that you know, with the advent of uh, technology and the internet and, and being able to just email files back and forth that you can get the same effect with people who are you know, not in the same house, not in the same city uh, and even potentially not in the same country, although I can't say I've collaborated with uh, anybody overseas yet. But I guess the the point I'm trying to make as a writer is that uh, writing is a solitary uh, act, although there are opportunities and times uh, where a writer can actually work with another writer, and, and I just find it interesting to um, to see. I am currently... Uh, in the process of uh, finalizing a story that I'm writing with Kimberly Footit, who's a friend of mine here in Hamilton. And even though we are in the same uh, city, we haven't sat down to write it together. We've been doing the uh, email exchange back and forth for a story. This is a story that uh, is uh, for Campus Chills, which is an anthology that I'm editing, uh, and it takes place at uh, university and college campuses across Canada, and it's mostly ghost stories and tales of the supernatural born out of the dark shadows of campuses, and, and our particular story takes place at McMaster University, so I'm quite excited about that one. Uh, but similarly, uh, Kimberly and I are just passing the story back and forth and talking about it a little bit, although in this case we're actually talking about it in person rather than on the phone or via email. And uh, and I'm looking forward to, as we're just finalizing the, the final drafts of that, I'm looking forward to the end result. Because uh, again, Kimberly is a, a writer who I admire and I'm quite eager to, um, to get the finished product out there and uh, engage people's reaction. But let me get back to the brilliant writers, Michael and Carol. Um, I am aware of a book that they have coming out called Ouroboros. It's coming out from Bloodletting Press, and it's going to be printed, I believe, October 31st, 2009. It's a very special case where Bloodletting Press is only going to print as many copies as are ordered prior to October 31st, 2009. So you have to pre-order it in order to get one. It's a little bit expensive, but I honestly believe that it's well worth the money. I can probably not do the book justice, and and here's the interesting part, is I haven't read it. I don't know much more about it than what I've heard in reviews, such as a review you're going to hear in this podcast from Norm Rubenstein. I was given permission by Norm and Mark Justice of the Pod of Horror podcast to replay this snippet, a review that Norm gave it in Pod of Horror 55 um, 
even though I haven't read the book, I know enough about Michael and Carol's writing to know that I'm absolutely going to love it. And based on what Norm says about it, the first thing I did, because I was delaying and dilly-dallying and I hadn't pre-ordered it, even though I knew I was going to buy it, but the moment I finished listening to the Pot of Horror uh, podcast number 55 with Norm's review, I basically put down my MP3 player, went to the nearest computer, and I placed my order for this book. And I can't wait till it comes out. And... Um, and I know that it's going to be well received, and those people who uh, took the time to invest in this book are not going to be disappointed. And I can say that without having read it, because I know the quality of writing that comes from Michael and Carol. Um, but I think Norm says it best in this uh, review that he gave it. So again, this is Norm Rubenstein uh, reviewing the book Ouroboros by Michael Kelly and Carol Weeks. And this was a snippet from the Pod of Horror number 55 podcast. Pod of Horror! (laughs) The very first book I want to bring to your attention today is a truly spectacular, spellbinding, and very frightening novel that I've been lucky enough to have had a rather unique relationship with. The novel is titled Ouroboros, spelled O-U-R-O-B-O-R-O-S, by Michael Kelly and Carol Weeks. It is being published by Bloodletting Press through its new Arcane Wisdom imprint, and is currently up for pre-sale through the Horror Mall and other specialty press bookstores, with an expected release date of, surprise, surprise, Halloween 2009. Make sure you get your orders in early because it's only going to be up for sale for a limited period of time. I want to properly set the scene by letting you all know about my personal relationship with this novel. I initially became aware of Ouroboros when I was asked to read and review an advanced draft of the novel that was at that time being published by a United Kingdom-based publisher called Humdrumming Press. I read the ARC, or Advanced Reader's Copy, and was truly and utterly blown away by the book. For reasons that I'll get into shortly. Now, I wrote my review, which was set for publication over at Fear Zone, and turned it into Greg Lamberson, the brilliant, multi-talented writer, editor, and director who runs Fear Zone. He forwarded an advanced copy of my review to the novel's two co-authors, and we all struck up an informal correspondence. Meanwhile, I casually mentioned this fantastic novel I'd read to a bunch of people I knew and suggested they all make sure to order it, as I'd been very deeply and favorably impressed by the novel. A while later, I was notified by Greg Lamberson that my review was being pulled because just about a week shy of publication, the publisher, Humdrumming Press, had suddenly been forced to close down operations, and the novel was suddenly one of a number of books in limbo due to Humdrumming's having closed down. In this interim time period, I'd been hired by Larry Roberts, for whom I'd been doing some freelance work, as an associate editor for Bloodletting Press. I immediately got on the phone to Larry and suggested that he inquire into the possibility of obtaining the rights to this novel, and luckily, indeed, Bloodletting Press managed to procure the rights to Ouroboros, and I found myself suddenly as associate editor 
and working on the book with the two co-authors, Michael Kelly and Carol Weeks, and with Larry Roberts. Now, Michael and uh, Carol are both not only very, very talented authors, but delightful individuals, and it was a pleasure to work with them. The original manuscript was then extensively revised and rewritten, transforming what was already a great novel into something I truly believe to be a transcendent piece of writing. Then, just last month, to in a sense complete the cycle and bring things full circle, the three Bloodletting Press associate editors, including Little Old Me, were regretfully informed by the publisher that our services were being terminated. Now, our parting with Bloodletting Press was and is totally amicable, and I certainly remain close friends with Larry Roberts. And I admire his resolve to do whatever is necessary to keep Bloodletting Press and all of its related imprints firmly in the forefront of producing among the finest horror genre limited edition books ever printed. Indeed, Larry's commitment to quality can be seen in the Horror Writers Association having, just in this past June, awarded this year's Bram Stoker Award for Best Specialty Press to Bloodletting Press. Okay, with all that out of the way, let me tell you a bit more about the novel Ouroboros itself. It's set in the small town of Chambers in the eastern Canadian maritime region, and effectively utilizes the Atlantic Ocean and the harsh, wild, and erratic maritime weather as a supporting character. Ouroboros is a unique combination of both traditional and contemporary ghost story. At the outset, I want you to all know that I am consciously and deliberately going to try and withhold any potential spoilers within this review, so as to neither diminish nor utterly spoil the effect of actually reading this fantastic novel. And so we'll keep discussion of the story to a safe but rather bare minimum. You will both understand and thank me for this consideration once you start reading the novel for yourselves. Ouroboros centers upon the lives of four dear friends. Two older married couples who are neighbors and close friends, Mick and Roberta Nate Robbie Hamlin, and Tom and Dorothy Nate Dolly Christensen. Mick's a 60-something-year-old, recently retired accountant and the narrator of the novel. He and Robbie remain very much in love with each other and totally devoted to each other. The same can be said of their close friends and next-door neighbors, Tom and Dolly, who are of similar age and temperaments. They have shared all that life has dealt to them over an approximately 40-year period and remain steadfast friends, always congratulating and or consoling each other as circumstances dictate. This remains true even when Dolly learns that she has inoperable breast cancer and only supposedly has months left to live. Dolly is a very strong-willed individual and does not deign to give in to nor allow anything to come between her and her husband, Tom, the true love of her life. Not even cancer, not even death. However, Eventually, the cancer and death both seemingly triumph just short months later. Dolly's unfortunate death seems to start an abrupt change in the relationship between Tom and the Hamlins. Tom believes he needs time alone to try and cope with the truly devastating loss of the love of his life and his one true companion, just as Robbie and especially Mick, believing that Tom needs friendly company now more than ever, try to include him in their plans and spend more time with him. 
Mick is worried about his old friend, who appears to be grieving rather excessively, and feels that it is his duty to check up on his best friend, something that the increasingly irritated Tom views as meddling and spying, and even as trespassing. Yet Mick becomes more concerned as he views poor Tom engaging in what appears to be rather eccentric behavior, constantly setting the table and cooking for two, talking to the seemingly empty house, among many other things. Yet things over at the Christensen house are far weirder than Mick initially realizes, and Mick's kindly meant intrusions become dangerous both to himself and to others. The book pays attention to detail. The four main characters will become fully formed, complex, and compelling persons to readers, and readers will quickly and deeply become invested into their lives, and even the novel's secondary characters are unique, interesting, and very well-fleshed-out and real-feeling people. Ouroboros deals with and deeply explores issues of love, loss, responsibility, life, and death. It is an exceptionally well-written novel. It is brilliantly atmospheric, subtly and expertly builds tension and fear, and contains numerous moments of true blood-curdling horror that will terrify even the most jaded horror aficionado. While in part eerily reminiscent of vintage Shirley Jackson and also early King and Straub, with a soupçon of Barker, Macon, and Coons for extra flavor, authors Kelly and Weeks have created their own original and immensely effective voice and style. Ouroboros is a truly superior piece of literature and writing that, percent, pardon me, that transcends any mere genre classification. It is not only a superb and vastly chilling tale of horror that will leave you unable to sleep for nights afterwards, it is also a moving, exceptionally well-written story that will appeal to readers of high-quality literature that would not ordinarily seek or wish to read anything labeled remotely as horror. It is also one of those rare books that should appeal equally to male and female readers alike, as well as to both readers of all ages. Do not make the mistake of getting any preconceptions about this novel based even upon my brief overview of the plot. You will find yourself mesmerized by this novel, whether you are age 18 or age 80, male or female. Yes, I know times are hard, and with the economy in its present condition, even the purchase of a book can suddenly become, for most of us, something far more serious than an impulse buy. However, Ouroboros is one of the few books that I can strongly recommend without reservation as being worthy of purchase, and indeed as close to a must-read as these uncertain times will allow. This book receives my highest endorsement and is destined to become a book that should still be read and discussed a century or two from now. Pod of Horror Well, that wraps up Episode 8 of Prelude to a Scream. I am your host, Mark Leslie. You can find this podcast online at preludetoascream.blogspot.com. You can find me at markleslie.ca. 
I'd like to thank you for joining me today, and I'd like to thank Michael Kelly and Carol Weeks for allowing me to read a story that I co-wrote with them, Relic. Also love to thank Mark Justice and Norm Rubenstein for allowing me to use Norm's wonderful review of Michael and Carol's forthcoming novel, Ouroboros, in this podcast. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you for sticking around. Please note that this podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives License. Feel free to make as many copies of it as you want and distribute it to as many thousands of people as you can. If you do, please just apply some attribution and let people know where you got it from. Thanks again so much for listening. The music has been provided by Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com. Thanks, Kevin, for the wonderful theme music Noir Mild Tension, which is used in every episode of Prelude to a Scream. Again, I'm Mark Leslie. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.